1 John 3, 4 through 10 is where we're at this morning. Uh, if you're anything like me, you hate tests. Um, I know right now that some of you are on the brink of exams, and um, I'm praying for you. And I'm glad that I never have to do that ever again by the grace of God. And I know that all of you who are, are out of school, uh, and you're thankful for that as well, Maybe you didn't know that you have exams, and maybe I just reminded you, and now you're going to go home with the panic and go study. Um, but for me, I, I did not have, uh, did not, I never loved exam, never loved tests. And back in my day, uh, in grammar school, we had this thing called the CAT, the CAT test. And it was kind of prepare you, uh, as a little kid, to be, get used to what is the SAT. Um, and the, the CAT is basically the California Achievement Test. And it was kind of to help you figure out your placement for the next year. And because I uh, didn't like tests, I just thought it would be funny uh, when I got the multiple choice questions is just to answer them uh, in a zigzag form, which is A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, all the way down, A, B, C, D, D. And I just think zigzags and funny little designs. And um, that is a great strategy if you want to repeat a grade. Um, which is what happened, all right? Um, And uh, just kids, you know, don't follow Pastor Ben's example in this way, all right? Um, But I I just hated, I hated tests. And I tell you all that to let you know that we um, are going to have a test this morning. Uh, We're going to be tested on how we love the gospel, how we love Christ. I'm not going to answer a multiple choice card, but uh, biblically, uh, we're to be tested. Uh, Paul, even when he talks about this type of test that we have, he uses this language in 2 Corinthians 13. He talks to a group of believers, and this is what he says. He says, believers, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Then he says, test yourselves. Or do you realize, or do you not realize that this, uh, this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about, well, see if you're really in the faith. See if you're truly a believer, And so this morning, we're going to test ourselves to see if we're truly in a believer. Now, how do we know whether or not we pass or fail this test? Well, thankfully, we have 1 John chapter 3. It's going to help us understand whether or not we have passed or we have failed. John is going to tell us in chapter 2 what a child of God looks like. He says, listen, a child of God is someone who's uh, eager to see Christ. They're not shrinking back at his return. Uh, A child of God is going to be hated by the world. There's going to be a kind of a cross, uh, a counter-cultural life that they're going to live that's going to threaten the world. And then he talks about how uh, a child of Christ, a child of God is really going to be Again, to look like Jesus. And then what he's going to do in chapter 3 of 1 John is he's going to begin to unpack the differences between a believer and a non-believer. And he's going to show us this stark contrast in order that believers might wonder if they really are truly saved. So if you look with me, Will, in 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 4 as John unpacks this contrast. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, it's very interesting the way that John describes sin here. 
he describes it as lawlessness. Now, most of the time we think about lawlessness, we immediately think, what, Ten Commandments, right? We go, oh, he's talking about sin as breaking the Ten Commandments. Now, what we're going to find in this message throughout the sermon, it's really not about um, ten things that God is mad at you about or hanging over your head. We're going to actually realize it's not about the Ten Commandments at all. Rather, it's about this new covenant, this meaning we are, John is talking about the heart. He's going to the heart of the matter. When he talks about lawlessness, he's talking about our rebellious heart toward God. And he's warning us, if you're willing to stay in rebellion with your heart toward God, he says that is lawlessness. The way that the the great reformer Martin Luther describes sin, he describes it actually in this way. He says, sin in the scriptures means not only external works of the body, but also all those movements within us which bestir themselves and move us to do the external works, namely the depth of the heart with all its powers. The way that Luther here describes sin is he's not talking about the external things. He's saying it's the heart. Interestingly enough, this is the way that John describes it. It's about our heart, our motive, our worship before God. And that's how we should see it. That's how we should see sin. It's the bending of our heart toward or away from God. Now, we hear that this morning, but it's hard to practically live that out. And let me just say, it's harder to practically live that out if you have kids. If you have kids, it becomes a very difficult thing to chase down the heart issues of your children. Um, I have two boys, and the way that I have to discipline them is see, is try to get an insight of their heart. Now, that's impossible because I'm not God, but I try, all right? And I fail a lot. But the way that we often parent is, you, you parent based on what I see in our culture is people will often parent like how the law deals with us. Like, okay, did the punishment, what's the punishment? Did you speed? Okay, if you sped, well, you only get this fine. Or you killed somebody. Oh, that's more of a, that's a bigger deal. Then we must punish you based on that. We're going to throw you in prison for a lifelong sentence. And we parent the same way often. We go, okay, what's the crime? Let me discipline based on that crime. And it's only, I'm only going to discipline based on the crime. Now, the problem when you do that is you become a police officer, not a parent. And then you miss the heart. And so for me, like I have, we have a rule. Boys, when we're at somebody's house, you have to respect their stuff. So you can't go jumping on somebody's couch. You can't go standing on somebody's table. You can't go throwing food wherever you want and acting and screaming at the top of your lungs whenever you want to. And man, I tell you, we have, then life group happens, right? And we have a life group that meets in someone's home. And I I, I don't know, but it's like houses now are built to where kids find a way to run around them in a complete circle. And that's what my boys do. They just run, 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 run. And now, listen, did they jump on a couch? No. Did they stand on the table? No. Did they throw food? No. But my point of it is, are you respecting this house? Are you respecting the people that own this house? Then if you did not respect that, I have to discipline you because I'm saying 
The point of it is, did you obey your mom and your dad? Did you see it this way? Did you understand this is a heart issue? This is a foundational issue. Now, if I just said, well, he broke a lamp, then he's in trouble. No, it's you did not see obedience. You did not carry it out. That's what we're talking about when we see John. I mean, just this past weekend, my son, Finn, my oldest boy, we, I took him um, camping. And to teach him, trying to teach him different things that uh, men do. And so I, just like a good old North Carolinian, I taught him how to use a gun. And uh, I did it by giving him a BB gun. I said, here, this is your gun. And this is daddy's gun. Daddy's gun is not a BB gun, all right? Um, and because we live in North Carolina, that's why it's not a BB gun. And look, this is how you aim the gun. Notice I'm not aiming all over the place. I'm only aiming at the target. Notice I'm aiming at the target while you are behind me. Notice before I shoot this gun, I want you to cover your ears. Notice, and I I go through all of these things. Respect this thing. Respect the people around you. And I'm building this idea so he can say, okay, this is a big deal. So shoot the gun. He's like, okay, that's, that's scary, right? That was loud. That was powerful. And then he gets his BB gun and he's talking to me and he looks at me like this and aims it at me as he's talking to me. Now, do I discipline him then or do I wait until he shoots me? I go, Finn, we've talked about this before. You are not to, you respect this. You respect the people around you and you missed this point that daddy was trying to make. You're not obeying your father. You didn't see this. That's me going to the heart. Now, the legalist would wait until you get shot. Oh, he got, you got shot in the arm. Oh, he got shot in the leg. Oh, he got shot in the face. Well, that's worse. We got to punish him more because he got shot in the face. Like, no, that's miss, you're missing the heart. The heart is he did not obey his father. He did not feel the weight of what his father was saying. And so John, when he talks about the heart, when he talks about sin, he's talking about the heart. He's saying the heart matters. And the way that he's going to describe a non-believer in a minute is someone who is okay with their sin. They're okay that their heart is not bent toward their creator. It's bent toward the created things. And so when he unpacks sin, he's talking about this heart issue. And then if you look in verse 5, he continues this. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus came to to bring us out of our sin. And then he's going to talk about how practically this is going to work. Verse 6, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, I want you to see the urgency in John's writing. Now, is John saying that once you become a believer in Christ, that you believe in the gospel, you repent of your sins, and you put your faith in Jesus, that you'll no longer sin, you'll become a sinless person? Of course he's not saying that. He says it in John chapter 1, the very end of John chapter 1. He says, if we say that we're without sin, we're liars. We don't practice the truth. So what is John saying? Well, the, the The main point that he's making, if you notice in verse 4, he says, anyone who makes a practice of sinning. 
So the context is someone who's living this lifestyle of sin and they are practicing their sin. It's this lifestyle of lawlessness. He's talking about someone who is consistently outward and inwardly rebelling against their creator and they are indifferent to that rebellion. And John's going to say he's a non-believer because he's practicing in his sin. Now, when I was a kid, one of my dreams was to be an NBA player. And I told my dad and my mom, you know, don't worry about college. I'm going to get a scholarship. You know, 10, 11 years old, I'm going to be a basketball player. I'm going to play on the Bulls with Michael Jordan. And it's just going to work. And so I just said, you might as well just sign me up for camp and, um, and get me some training to, to do this because I'm going to do it. And despite the fact that I am a five foot nine redhead dude who can't jump, I thought this was going to happen. So my dad puts me in a basketball camp. And in those days, the early 90s, this is when uh, North Carolina had just won a championship. And they just had players from that championship team come into our basketball camp. George Lynch, Eric Montross. George Lynch was this guy who was a six foot four power forward. If you know anything about basketball, you know how hard that is to be a shorter power forward. And as George Lynch, we're sitting around the perimeter, kind of like a three-point line like this, all the students of the camp. And George Lynch is standing there. And he's talking and shooting the ball. And he does not miss a shot while he's talking to us. It's just net, net. Every single shot is made. And then some kid says, how do you do that? Like, how do you make those shots that consecutively? He says, I'll tell you how I do it. I practice. And, well, well, tell me about your practice. How often do you practice? Well, I shoot 400 jump shots a day. And I thought, okay, I can do that. So I left the basketball camp. I got home. I got my dirt court I got a little spalding ball with like all nasty, dirty, with a bunch of ACC teams on it. And I began to shoot the ball. And I shot probably, I think I counted 68 shots and I made like 12 of them. And then as I miss, the ball goes rolling across the neighbor's yard. I go run and go get it. And man, this is a hassle. This is hard. I, I'm done at 68. Dad, I'm not going to the NBA. This is what it takes. And this is the practice and the commitment that it takes. I'm not, I'm, I'm out. I have never shot 400 shots consecutively. This guy did it every day. Um, um, Stephon Curry just recently, he's a point guard for the um, Golden State Warriors, one of my favorite NBA teams. And he shot, um, recently shot 103 pointers. Somebody in the nine o'clock service did not know what a three pointer was. So I'd explain. I was like, walk over here. This is that line. It's kind of that half circle that goes around. And if you shoot it behind that line, it's three points. I don't even know why I explained that, but there, that's your lesson in basketball. So he would stand outside, which would be three feet from this space. I think three more feet. That's how far the NBA three-point line is. And he shot around the circle, around the perimeter, 100 shots. He made 94 out of 100. He did not miss his first shot until 77. He made 77 consecutive shots. Now, if you don't think that sounds hard, try it after you help tear down and we move these chairs out of the way, shoot it, and try to shoot 100 shots. How does he do it? Well, people say he's a robot. He does it all the time. It is muscle memory to him. That's how he can do it. Now listen, as a man, 
I'm probably not going to develop my jump shot much more as a 36-year-old. And if I do, it's just sad, right? I'm living the dream, right? It's just... But I'm going to get good at things. Like, I'm going to get better at being a better craftsman at home. I'm going to be better at being, I'll finally figure out that, that um, what's stopping up our, our, um, our guest bathroom. I'm, I'm going to figure out, like, how to, how to build things better. I'm going to figure out how to, you know, maybe one day, uh, by the grace of God, figure out, you know, what's, what's that little squealy thing in my car. Like, I'm going to figure that out. I'm also, because I love Jesus, I'm going to be a better father by the grace of God. I'm going to be a better husband by the grace of God. I'm going to grow in my maturity. I'll be a better, hopefully be a better pastor by the grace of God. But if I am truly a believer, like if I'm walking in Christ, here's something I'm not going to get better at. Sinning. I'm not going to go and be better at lies or manipulation or lust or uh, deception or um, fear or hiding sin. I'm not going to get better at that. You know why? Because John says, I won't get better at that. I'll actually get better at fighting that. And that's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. If you are a believer, you're not going to get better at sinning because it won't be practice for you. It won't be second nature muscle memory for you. It won't. It won't be a part of your life. Christ came to take away sin. And so if you're in that world, perhaps you're not a believer. John is saying that if you are getting better at sinning and worse at fighting sin, frankly, John does not give you any confidence that you have a relationship with Christ. Interestingly enough, when John wrote this, he wrote this to people who were um, swayed in the wrong direction. There were false teachers in the church who believed that once you have this relationship with Christ, then you can do whatever you want. Your body doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you want. You're already in. You're already a spiritual being. That's what people were teaching in, this, in, in the churches of Asia Meyer, which is who John is talking to. And they said, it didn't matter what you do. John's saying, no, it does matter. This is why he says in verse 7, little children, which is the title that he gives all believers, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. See what he says? He says, whoever, don't, do, don't be deceived by these people who are teaching this false doctrine that you can do whatever you want. He's saying, no, if someone does that, they're not believers. If you are a believer, you're going to practice living for Christ. You're going to practice obedience, and you're just going to get better at it. Not out of your strength, but the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you. And so, it's very much, the culture that John's dealing with is very much like the culture that we see in the South of, I prayed the prayer, now I'm in. I've got my get out of hell free card, I can do whatever I want. I'm in. And John's going to say, if you have that mindset, you're perhaps not a believer. And so, This is why what John says next is so important. He says it in verse 8. He says, 
whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What did Satan bring? He brought sin into the world. He promised our first parents, Adam and Eve, that they would be like God, and so he sold them in the idolatry of wanting creation over the creator, and they gave in. And so before Christ died for us, we are slaves to sin and death because we were represented by our first parents, Adam and Eve. But the gospel, it changes everything. And this is actually what Paul, when he argues in the book of Romans, he argues this tension of um, a believer versus a non-believer. If you're, if you're a believer, you're with the spirit. If you're a non-believer, you're in the flesh. And then he's gonna go on in Romans 8 and he's gonna walk us through the spirit and the flesh. Romans 8 verse 1, he says, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law is of the spirit of life and set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the light, likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. See what he's saying? He's saying if you are not walking in the spirit, meaning you're not a believer, you're only gonna give in to the flesh. You're only gonna give in to the pattern of the world. You're only gonna be a slave to your sin. But he says, listen, if you are a believer, if you have the spirit of Christ in you, he says, you're going to have a bend toward setting your mind on things of the Spirit. You're going to do what the Spirit does. What does the Spirit do? The Holy Spirit promotes Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is going to promote Christ in your life if you are a believer. And then he says, verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he's saying, if you're living and walking in the flesh, you are hostile to God, you cannot please God, you are walking in the flesh because you came from the flesh. You're not a believer. But if you walk in the spirit, you will give in to the spirit, meaning you've been washed by the blood of Christ. You are a believer. So there's no gray here. There's no middle person, kind of this person in between that's, I'm saying I'm a Christian, but I'm walking in the flesh. I'm doing whatever I want. No. If he's savior of your life, he's Lord of your life, meaning you will walk in obedience to him because that's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. He promotes Christ in your life. He causes you to obey. He causes you to repent. And this is why I want to push back on what we see in evangelical culture that can just be so silly about, well, that person's backsliding, but he's a Christian. Really? When was the last time he walked in repentance? Well, that's been years. I mean, he hadn't been to church in 20 years, but I remember seeing him get baptized. He's a believer. Paul would say, James would say, he's not. There's no evidence of fruit in his life. He's not giving in to the spirit in any place in his life. He's only giving in the flesh. That's where like, you, you go like, 
We're going to have um, an altar call for those of you who want to come to know Christ. But we're also going to have an altar call for those of you who want to rededicate your life. What does that even mean? Like, I rededicate my life every day because it's a daily walking in Christ. But listen, it's not this, oh, rededication means you were doing whatever you want, and now you finally decided not to do whatever you want and do what Christ said. No, that's called believer. That's called becoming a believer. That's not rededication. That's called becoming a believer. Let's not confuse these things. It's not like you have to renew your vows with God. You're either, look, to, to quote John, he says, you're either a son of the father or you're a son of Satan. Those are the only two options that you have. You're either, you have one or of two fathers. But you can't rededicate sonship. I don't go back to my dad because I'm angry at him and go, can I rededicate myself as your son? Will you allow me to rededicate myself and could you rededicate yourself to be my father? Like, no, that's silly. You don't rededicate something that's, that you didn't do to begin with. You were adopted and God called you his son. You were adopted and God called you his daughter. You don't have to rededicate that. It's there. And if it's there, then you will begin to love the things that your father loves and hate the things that your father hates and you'll begin to walk in obedience to him. And John says that Jesus came to take away sins and if we abide in him, we'll continue in that lifestyle. And then he makes another point in what Jesus came to do. Chapter three, verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is, is of the devil, but the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Then he goes on to say, the reason that God, that the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See what he says there? Here's why Christ appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. What does it mean when he says that? It means the devil cannot cause you to sin. The devil cannot snatch you out of the, the loving, sovereign hand of God. The devil does not make you sin. I know people will say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. James 4 says, what causes, quite, uh, what causes quarrels and fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you sin, yeah, that's your fault. Sorry. Devil didn't make you do it. That was you. That was you. Who, now, does Satan tempt us? Does Satan try to deceive us? Yes, but he cannot make you sin because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So the devil cannot pull you out of relationship with God. And now John helps us understand this more because of what he says next in verse nine. I know what's hot in here. I'm glad we didn't do a sermon on hell, right? Verse nine. <laughs> no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, what does it mean when he says God's seed abides in him? Well, the, here's the point that he's making. He's talking about something that Jesus, John would have heard Jesus say directly or, or talk about directly. There was a man named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and at this point, Jesus had gathered crowds and crowds of people, and Nicodemus, he shows up and tries to find Jesus in the night because he's too prideful that people would see him. 
And he, he comes to Jesus kind of secretly, and he asks him in secret, Jesus, how is it that you're doing all of these signs and wonders? How are you healing the sick? How are you raising people from the dead? And then this conversation begins, and he's thinking Jesus is going to tell him his magic tricks. But Jesus just says in John 3, 3, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is John talking about? What is Jesus talking about to Nicodemus? He's saying, you have to be born again. That's where we get this language, a born again Christian. He's saying, you have to have new birth. Nicodemus didn't understand it. He goes, so I need to go get my mom and like Benjamin Button this thing and somehow end up back inside. My, like it's, it got really weird. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's about new birth. It's about new life. He's talking about born of the spirit. You've been given a new heart. You, you, God has taken a rebellious heart and replaced it with a new heart. The new heart happens to love God. And because of that, you are an incurable God lover. And in verse 10 of 1 John 3, he continues. He says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Two things that is just captured right there. What is the evidence? Well, John says, Obedience, you're gonna walk in righteousness. You're gonna wanna live for Christ. What's the other evidence? You're gonna love your brother. Now, this is not that John had, John's gonna keep talking about this in 1 John, like loving your brother is evidence. It's not that he had a, a bad relationship with his biological brothers and there was some issues there that he's just trying to hash out in 1 John. No, he's actually talking about the way that we as believers interact with other, each other. We're gonna be marked by love for one another. And then we're going to be marked by loving God. He is our king. He is our master. He is our Lord. So love God, love others. John even heard Jesus say this directly to the disciples. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, disciples, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also to love one another by this. All people, all people will know. See the evidence? They'll know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So loving God, loving others. And what I'm trying to say is this is the law of Christ. This is why John's not talking 10 commandments or old covenant. He's talking new covenant. You are under the law of Christ. Law of Christ is you'll love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. He'll change your heart not the external things. And if he changes your heart, you'll produce fruit. And here's fruit. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. Same issue. Walk in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. Paul says this, Galatians 5 verse 16. But I say to you, walk in the spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law you're not under the Ten commandments what he's saying now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will eventually inherit the kingdom of heaven. Is that what it says? Kingdom of God. It says they will not. So this is what he's saying. If you are not a believer, you're marked by these things. These are the works of the flesh. Sexual morality, impurity, sensually, idolatry, all of these things. This is what you are at birth. You are at war with God. This is the works of the flesh. But then he contrasts it in verse 22. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the the flesh with his passions and desires. He's saying those who belong to Christ are going to produce fruit. All of those things. Now, if you grew up in church like me, that means you had a felt board with the fruits of the spirit. And there's an apple and that's joy and there's a pineapple and that's righteousness and there's like some other fruit, a banana is patience and like all these things. And they say, which one do you do well? Little Johnny, you do joy well. Well, that's the apple. I'll put this in your side. And then we kind of walk through it like it's sort of like a, like a profile of gifts or something that we're good at. But listen, that's not the point at all about spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts are, do you have these things or do you not and if you have the holy spirit in your life you are going to produce these things an apple tree makes apples it doesn't make anything else and he's saying if you are a believer you don't produce anything else this is what's going to come out of you love joy peace patience kindness gentleness self-control all of these things are going to ooze out of you because you love Christ but the works of the flesh will not ooze out of you you might struggle you might go back and waver and fight the works of the flesh in your life but you're not going to be marked by these things and you're definitely not going to get better at doing those things And so here's the thing. This is how we test ourselves. We go, which one am I marked by? Which one is my heart bent toward? If it's bent toward the works of the flesh and you're practicing the works of the flesh and you're resisting the works of the spirit, John's going to say, you have no confidence that you're a believer. If you're getting better at sinning and not repenting, John is going to say, you have no confidence that you've ever truly repented. If you are going around in hatred in your heart towards your brother or your sister in Christ, John gives you no confidence that you are truly in the family of God. So this morning, if you didn't pass the test of whether or not you're a believer, and you would say, I'm marked by the flesh, My my heart is bent toward disobedience rather than obedience. I am practicing sinning and I am continuing this and I am indifferent. And you would say, I failed the test. Can I just tell you that there's grace here? 
Can I just tell you to hear the words of John when he talks about Christ, that Christ appeared in order to take away sins? Can I tell you that John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness, all of the works of the flesh? He is able to do that if you repent and believe the gospel. So there is grace here in the gospel if you do not pass the test. If you are a slave to sin this morning, do not fake it. You cannot hide it from God. But I want to invite you to fall into his arms of grace. That Christ came to take away our sin. So this morning, if you're not a believer, repent and believe. This is your only hope. If you walk in the flesh, ask the Holy Spirit of God to save you and to draw you to Jesus. If you are a believer and you say, you did pass the test. You do have a new heart. Here's what is promised to us. Jesus not only forgave you for your sins, but he purchased for you a new heart that you would be a believer, that you would grow in your relationship with God. So here's what you're gonna get better at, believer. You're gonna get better at walking in the spirit. You're gonna get better at fighting sin. That's a guarantee. Because it's not about what you're doing. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Jesus loves you so much that he does not allow you to stay in your sin and you go back to what John says in in chapter three, verse two, that what will be has not yet appeared, but what we know when we appear is we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We look to that day when when the finished work of Christ is perfected in us, we are like him. That's a guarantee if you're a believer. The other guarantee, if you're a believer, that Satan has no rule over you. You have a Savior, and you have a Lord, and his name is Jesus. So there is grace in the gospel this morning for you who believe and for you who don't. If you believe, our confidence is in Christ. If you do not believe, repent and believe the gospel, for it is your only hope. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Help us to find joy in the gospel. Help us to find grace in the gospel. And Lord, for those who do not believe, would you soften their hearts? Would you help them see their sin? Help them to see their need for you. And for those of us who believe, help us to find confidence in knowing that you are our Father and we are your children. And we humbly submit our lives to you. In Jesus' good name, amen.